0: Welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from 1839 going forward to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is a love letter and farewell letter to that country for the beginning announcements uh, if you'd like to support the, the podcast uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast you can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com uh, send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com and prompt me to write things for the Substack. stack um, oh, let's see uh, I was, by the way, uh, I was out for three weeks cause life kind of got busy and I didn't want to give you a hurriedly thrown together episode. I do podcasting cause it keeps my brain chewing on something. It helps me think through what I experienced in China. Um, uh, and I'll try to keep cranking out episodes weekly, but, uh, just hang in there. If there are breaks, I haven't gone anywhere. Well, I have got, I would have gone somewhere, but I'll, they'll be back. I While I was out, I talked to some friends who did drop out of listening. It helped me uh, get an idea of how this podcast goes over. You know, China is a subject that is hard for people to get a feel for. I've been on it for years myself, so if people talk about China, I have a much better starting point for you know understanding what people are talking about. I listen to podcasts about it all the time. You know, this podcast is, as much as possible, something you should be able to follow the main points of without having to become a China expert. As much as possible, I'm trying to make it accessible to where if you don't know anything about China, you should be able to kind of hook in and get something that may or may not work because China is a difficult topic to crack. But, you know, I'll continue to try and get better at bringing out the the main points that really make a difference in the meandering epic story that we're following here. So that's just uh, some of where I've been lately, and so here we go, back with the episodes. Last episode, we looked at the Odds that Zhang Guofan, the general, was working against. He was having to take his soldiers from Hunan province, deep in the interior of China, outside Hunan for an emperor they may or may not have cared for. The Taiping rebel armies were much, much larger. So if Zhang Guofan was going to win, he would have to do so by skill and strategy. He was also diplomatically picking and choosing which orders from the emperor that he'd obey because the thing is is you can get a lot of orders but if you want to fulfill you, you you have to it's like you go to your boss and say so which one of these do you want me to do like do you want me to preserve the dynasty do you want me to win the war Or do you want me to go everywhere that you think of to tell me to go? Well, uh, today we're going to go back into Zeng Guofan's situation as he moves toward the siege of Anqing. Uh, Some of where we're about to go, uh, the book we're following, uh, I'll give you the title in just a moment, Uh, The Book we're following is about to jump to the situation with foreign intervention. It's about to jump over to the taiping their their leaders, and some of the changes that are going to happen in the Taiping ideology, how Hong Ran Gan, the guy who spent a lot more time with European missionaries and foreigners in Hong Kong. How he's going to exert an influence on the movement, but for today's episode, we're going to finish up with Guo Fan. So we're following the book "Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom: China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War" by Stephen R. Platt. Um, so something Guo Fan is dealing with right now. Outside authorities want to divert the forces he's raised to other theaters of operation. They wanted to reallocate his troop numbers for use elsewhere. But you know, imagine the motivation behind different kinds of fighters in different situations. Like So in one case, all the local men, young, old, healthy, sick, going to incredible efforts to drive the enemy out of their town, their county, their state. On the other side, carefully selected, you know, tested, only the winners selected, Drilled, disciplined, trained, a corps of professional soldiers prepared to go anywhere at all that their commanders order them to go. this, This other group is much smaller. The human element in military campaigns is often the deciding factor. As long as there's someone left to resist, someone to actively plan, someone left to break up the attackers' plans and goals, the fight can continue. People fighting for home, for the defense, they have incredible direct line to why they're fighting motivation to fight people being sent elsewhere have low motivation or they have to be very very particular kind of people uh, born and bred or selected and trained to be competent soldiers to just send somewhere so the if you know, so like if you're fighting for home and they just never give up, you know, like the old women are coming out at you with machine guns and okay, they've they've got as long as they don't stop fighting, the war continues. Uh you know, like they, they, they have motivation, that there's like the magic thing is there for them. It's like, yeah, that's that's that's, you know, old Mrs. Grundy's front garden that you drove your tank through, and she's really, really pissed off about losing her prize roses. So she's gunning for you, and that's that, you know, you're, you're, and then, of course, her children are gonna avenge her if you kill her, so, you know, God help you if Mrs. Grundy sets her sights on you. To kill you. Uh, the, Uh, So Zeng Guofan, uh, he's carefully preserving the human element in what makes his soldiers at all useful. He's gotten them to believe in him and his plan. He's gotten them to go outside Hunan, understanding that defeating the Taiping is the way to protect their home province. As we talked about in the last episode, Zeng Guofan is having to drive his forces to win by strategy and not by superior numbers, this will re- that that's going to require preserving and boosting morale. That means continued victories, or the continued sense that they can win, that their endurance is going toward something. Like if you're ever if you ever remember a time you've been between jobs, well, it's like you don't know how close you're getting to getting a good job. You don't know. When it's going to be over, it can be terribly demotivating. Um, so, if the if the Hunan troops don't feel like it's worth it, that could be it. Let's look at uh, look at a comparison from the United States Civil War, which was roughly contemporaneous with the Taiping Rebellion. Well, the rebel side was fighting a defensive war. They had inferiority in numbers, inferiority in weapons, industry. Uh, All the immigrants were going to the north, so they didn't just have Germans getting off the boat, Irish getting off the boat, ready to sign up for, you know, well, for a quick job in the army. Um, You know, that signing up to be a soldier, at least that was a job. Uh, The... They didn't have that going to the South. But what they had was time. If they could keep fighting, outside powers might possibly intervene. The Union side needed to win sooner rather than later. In the American political system, the president changes every four to eight years. And so if the nation doesn't believe in the war, it might end. it. That might be it. Um, the Army of the Potomac had been fighting for two or three years. They suffered many losses, had many changes of commanders. So the the troops were kind of, you know, like, okay, you know, what's a new general? Okay, we're going to fight, we're going to die, and I guess we just keep doing this until our contracts are up, right? Well, that started to change when Ulysses S. Grant got to be in charge of the Army of the Potomac. That st- st- he kept the army engaged with rebel forces rather than back away to regroup. He kept closing with Lee and didn't Lee back away. To, didn't let Lee back away to regroup. As General Lee, commander of the Army of Northern Virginia for the rebel side, um, though the and I know Grant was the commander. I, I believe he was the overall commander of Union forces, not the. Not directly over the Army of the Potomac. George Meade stayed in that role after Gettysburg. Anyway, um, just if any Civil War buffs are listening in, yeah, I am aware of some of the finer details. Okay, so the, the, the Union side continued to take heavy losses, but the troops could see that Grant had a plan. He had the will to win. He could get them to keep buying into the fight that they were staying in the fight that they weren't just getting beaten and backing off if they got beaten they kept moving around they kept pressing on to keep lee from being able to back away and regroup and beat him again so that that he had the he was keeping them he was giving them something to believe in that he didn't lose confidence in their ability to fight. He didn't lose confidence in what they were doing on the battlefield, that even if many more of them died, they knew that they were working toward victory. So, uh, and, then, and a big point to keep in mind in you know, broader history, history is determined by small numbers of people cranking away at whatever it is they're supposed to be doing. So Zeng Guofan is pursuing the strategy to work his way up the Yangtze River to cut off the Taiping ability to move up and down the river and to ultimately besiege and take the the city of Nanjing and to end the Taiping rebellion by killing its leaders. And so... He got his troops to believe in this, this strategy, this goal to, to keep taking cities, to, to keep taking fortified cities up the Yangtze River, well, down really, going towards the coast. That he got, that if they were doing this, This would keep the Taiping from being able to go further into central China and to ravage their home province of Hunan. Well, in the American Civil War, it was relatively straightforward to go to the enemy capital, and so a lot of fighting happened between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia. They just kept going back and forth there. Uh, Some of the battles of the war were... When a force would get around behind the, the capital, like, um, so that was, so, like, like, the, the, the American Civil War was pretty short. So some of the, uh, battles that would happen, like Gettysburg, uh, the, the rebel forces got up north of Washington, D.C. Well, the, in the Taiping Rebellion, you had armies doing this for years that the it, it, the conflict was not so neatly divided geographically. You know, here's the north, here's the south, and they're kind of coming from you know what side. The Taiping armies were running around in a colossal game of whack-a mole where the the regular Qing forces would try to fight them and win. But they're they're running around, taking things, ravaging things. So you know, so so you have forces on both sides just kind of running around, and ultimately one side or the other is just going to wear down. So if so, for Qing forces to win, they really have to end the Heavenly Kingdom thing going on at Nanjing to really end the war that the where you can have parallels between the american civil war um mostly i can just get it from you know certain incidents of how they would keep their motivation or whether or not foreign forces intervened well the the uh how the how the the Qing forces had to win is they had to take the they, they had to kill the rebel leaders that once they got to that, the people who were running the Taiping rebellion then it was over uh, while the Taiping were distracted by some victories eastward you know cl- closer to the coast of China Zeng Guofan took advantage of the situation and he starts his approach downriver by besieging the fortified city of anqing doesn't really matter where it is just understand that he's going to start taking cities down the river until he gets to nanjing the the taiping have hundreds of thousands of quick-moving troops to play with and Zeng Guofan has small numbers of tens of thousands to play with. So, like the, the Taiping, they, they, they have big armies and they, they move fast and they run all over China. But the Hunan army, it's a few tens of thousands. It's, it's not, so he's going to be a raccoon choking out a grizzly bear. It's just, He's, he's just kind of going to have to really play it smart. Um, he's, so here's how he's going to take on the city of Anqing. He sends his younger brother, Zeng Guoquan, and we're going to keep calling him the younger brother. Um, well, I'll try to use the name, but um, for people who don't know Chinese, it's really hard to remember the different people. So Zunguafan's younger brother is going to take ten thousand soldiers. They're going to build a wall around the city wall, and they're going to build another wall to protect themselves from Taiping forces coming in from the outside. This is con- this is called contravallation. So a wall around the city besieged, but then a wall to protect the besieging forces. Then there's going to be twenty thousand cavalry under the Manchu uh, commander Duolong uh, Duo Ah to protect against reinforcements coming down from the north, and there's going to be naval forces blockading from the river, and Zunguoafin is going to take his other thirty thousand into very rugged territory, uh, like fifty, sixty miles from Anqing. So fall of eight. 8- and so he's just setting up to to take this fortified city that's actually and if you read the art of war by sun Tzu uh taking fortified cities is actually one of the things that Sun Tzu tells you to avoid doing if you can but this is what he has to do that what what Zhanghuafan has to do to get control of the river so he can Besiege and choke out the Taiping rebels in their capital of Nanjing. So the where the Taiping rebels could just move really fast and strike hard, um, while they were starting out, Zeng Guofan needed to make absolutely sure that the rebels couldn't keep moving that that's one of the tricky things with putting down an insurgency you have to really really make sure that you are absolutely wiping out the the other side there's no oh well okay i i guess we lost um i guess that's the game no if if you're a rebel and you want to keep fighting you have to keep pushing on. We're going to see this later in the Chinese Civil War that the communists they win because they never give up. The nationalists lose because they weren't allowed by circumstances and by their foreign supporters to go the whole way and to wipe out the communists. So, so Zeng Guofan here is going to win because he completely wipes out the bad guys. So here's uh, some of the difficulties he's going to be facing. Okay, fall 1860, war with Britain and France, and the the emperor orders Zeng Guofan, this is the second opium war, the emperor orders Zeng to uh, send one of his best field commanders north with 3,000 men. Well, uh, we know what Zeng's going to do. He's going to ignore that order. He figures they'd be useless when they got to Beijing. Uh, he figures that the present defenses of Beijing would cover the need. And he's, he's wagering everything on the siege of Anqing. And he's holding the Taiping back at that line. The upper reaches of the Yangtze were not protected. He didn't have lots and lots of troops to just spend on uh, on building, you know, secondary and tertiary lines of defense. He's putting it all on. You know, he's putting it all on this siege, and he'd be risking the Hunan troops thinking that he wasn't doing his bit to protect hunan that you know it's like okay so we we go in and we fight we die for this plan of yours so like like what are you doing uh you know getting unfocused you know so so like grant like general grant continuing to engage lee zeng guofan is sticking to the fight with the taiping right where He's the one making the moves that the enemy has to respond to, that he's the one making the plans the enemy has to respond to him. So Zungufan wrote to the emperor for clarification, getting himself another month. He asked the you know, like, like asking some. I, it it seems from what I read that. Zhang asked a question as though something that was clear wasn't in fact clear. uh But it, it took two weeks for the message to get to the capital. It took two weeks for the message to get back. So that gives him another month. Uh, if everything's going really fast. He didn't directly say no, but he muddled things a bit. And I, I think the original message did was a pretty straightforward order. So this is Zhang Fan doing his bureaucratic... Because at heart, he was a Confucian bureaucrat. He, So he was playing around with messages so that he could stay focused on doing what he had to do. But Zhang was by no means confident and feeling like he's totally in charge of the situation. But he felt that his strategy was going to work that if something was going to work it was going to be something like what he was doing he had to stay on task and not restart somewhere else that if he gave up that it was all going to go for nothing as october 1860 gets on the siege of Anqing is not really going well um, taiping forces are nipping around the edges of zeng Guofan's position you know though zeng Guofan has left Beijing to fend for itself, he still has to deal with the fact that he's not hearing how it's going in Beijing. It's a lot easier to bear it if you can see that the people you've left to fend for themselves can handle it. He's not sure if he's going to have to cut his losses and abandon the siege. If he has to abandon the siege he's going to risk all the central parts of china that he's been trying to protect and then what next and then what next and then what next so he so he's he's doing what he's going all in for this siege of this this first fortified city on the way to nanjing but he doesn't know how it's going and then november 6 1860 he hears that foreign forces have taken Beijing, they've burned the Emperor's Palace, the one at Yuanmingyuan, the old summer palace. It's a beautiful park, by the way, I've been there many, many times. It didn't look so beautiful at this point. Uh, you know how the uh, fear of the unknown is one of the big things that people have anxiety about? Well, Fan is dealing with that in several directions. He doesn't know if the Beijing imperial regime is still there, if it's still in power. He doesn't know if the siege of Anqing is going to work, if his efforts against the Taiping don't work, what else is going to happen. Well, again, history often depends on single men or women not giving up. No one knows which thing is going to work. But we only have the story of who did what, and that in the end, it worked. We have the story of what worked, but it wasn't guaranteed at the time. Right here, we're dealing with one commander who took the elements of traditional Chinese society he had to work with, and he went somewhere with it. So like one of the things that, one of the things that, as I learn more about Chinese revolutions, it's amazing to see how Traditional Chinese ways of doing things continue even today in the modern, uh, you know, like the government of Taiwan or the government of the People's Republic of China. All the stuff in all of the ancient Chinese ways of doing things, they still make a difference today. So maybe I'll be able to find something I could pull out in that respect, when we get to people like Chiang Kai Shek and Mao Zedong, but you know, this this revolution, it, it's it's not just some sort of moribund, old Ch- ancient Chinese empire that's that's on its way out. No, they, there was there were active leaders. Try taking what they had to work with, fighting to preserve what was going on right there, right then. So as we go through revolutions, we're going to see what parts of China are the ones that turn out to be in charge, and then what other things get totally changed. So next week we'll look back in at the Taiping side of things, you know, And so some of the foreign ideas that we're playing with introducing some of the incidents with foreign forces that kept them from being able to connect with external support that might have helped them clinch their revolution. Um, I'm going to be working on bringing the Taiping Rebellion to a close so that we can sum up what we need to remember for revolutions coming up. Um, we're going to look at the changes that happened or that things that got started during the Taiping Rebellion. And we're going to sum up the main points that revolution in China needed to address, you know, as, because as we get closer to modern Chinese politics, you know, it's things like restoring and preserving Chinese sovereignty. It's going to be why the government of China does a lot of what it does. And, you know, up to even up to today. So, um, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the Substack at Chinese Revolutions. Please send me an email, Chinese Revolutions at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, see what you think. And uh, thanks for hanging with me, uh, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.